Good morning, everybody. For those that don't know you, know me, I'm sure you know you. Um, my name is Kim, and I'm married to Patrick. And uh, we have two beautiful children, Genevieve, who's 15, and Zachary, who's 12. So they'll be in the other part of the building doing teenager stuff. Uh, we've been around in the vineyard pretty much since we arrived from South Africa. I'm sure you can hear I've got a little bit of an accent. And that was almost 18 years ago. I know, I can't believe it. Um, So I have the privilege of talking here this morning. um, And I just wanted to say a quick thank you. A couple of people have just been really encouraging to me this morning. I have no idea how you knew that I was speaking. But uh, you just came up and given me a little word of encouragement. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Because I'm feeling a little nervous. Um, I've had a recurring bad dream for a little while now. I dreamt that Neil and Kate asked me to talk on a Sunday morning. And I was so excited and rather daunted by by the idea. So I prayed and I fasted and I read and I researched and I prayed some more. And I prepared the most amazing, fantastic talk. It was a dream, remember? So on the Sunday morning in question, I arrived and during worship, I prayed fervently that the Lord would use what I had to say, and I even rashly suggested that I would throw away my notes if that was what the Lord needed of me. Well, depending on how well you know me, you might think that I can talk for England, but in a situation like this, preparation, preparation, preparation is what I grew up with, so that was not going to be a very good idea. But in my dream, I had a choice. Did I stick with my notes or did I obey the Lord? So I very bravely chose to obey the Lord and I stood up on the stage and I tore my notes and I threw them to the wind. And things didn't go very well after that. (laughs) So you know the Lord speaks to us sometimes and sometimes he uses dreams. So I've taken that as the Lord speaking to me quite clearly Do do all the research and the praying and the fasting and everything else that you need to do, but don't throw your notes away and don't even suggest that you might do that to the Lord in case he takes you up on it. So I've got my notes. I haven't torn them. I've even put them in little plastic things so that I don't tear them up. So I'll try and stick to them. Now, Neil and Kate have asked a few of us to talk on the stories that Jesus told, and last week Rachel spoke on the woman at the well. To be fair, when I was reading through Matthew, I struggled for some time on which story to talk about. Because when Jesus speaks to his disciples in the first part of Matthew, he's actually quite direct. He talks to them about um, all sorts of things, prayer, fasting, adultery, um, healing, murder. And I found those passages much easier to digest because there were no gray areas. I'm not that keen on gray areas. But then we get to Matthew 13 and the parable of the four soils. Jesus' disciples were quite confused, and they had to ask him to explain. Again, as you go a little bit further on, there's some more parables, and Jesus again had to unpack their meaning to the disciples. So I think it's okay that if on the first reading of a parable, I'm not too clear, and it takes me a while to kind of understand what's going on in the parable. I think I'm in good company there. I haven't been to seminary school. I don't have a theology degree. So I think Neil and Kate were taking quite a risk when they asked me to unpack scripture because there are many who would be able to do so with excellence. 
But it seems to me that Jesus spoke in stories or parables so that the ordinary person, like me, could mull on it, think it over, come back to it, chew on it, and get something relevant and fresh out of them. And so I don't think you need a theology degree for that, for the stories that Jesus told. So that's just what I plan to do here with you today. Chew on it, mull over it, think a little bit through one of the parables, and marvel at some of the messages that I think are relevant here and for today. Let's just take a moment to pray quickly. Father God, we just ask for your presence. We ask for your revelation. Can't say that word. Revelation. And Lord, we ask that we would hear your heart for us this morning. In Jesus' name. We're going to look at Matthew 25. So if you'd like to open your Bibles or your apps on your phone, and if somebody sitting next to you has an app, you might want to share with them so that they don't move off to their notes and check their uh, social media. (laughs) Not that we would do that, of course. We're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins, or as some versions talk about the ten bridesmaids. So this is from Matthew 25, the first couple of verses. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Hmm, interesting choice, Kim. (laughs) Perhaps it's because we were privileged to be guests at an amazing wedding last weekend. But it's also just because I've been chewing over and mulling over the scripture for a while and thought I could do that with you this morning. My first difficulty when I read the scripture is I think of all the lovely weddings that we've been to over the years, or our own wedding, or some of those lovely programs on TV like Don't Tell the Bride. And they all help to perpetuate the pomp and ceremony and tradition that we associate with weddings. So what is it that makes a wedding a wedding for you? Is it the beautiful white dress, which actually was a trend that Queen Victoria started? Apparently before then you only used to wear your best dress. Or is it the tradition that the bride is kept on the left-hand side because the groom needs to keep his sword arm free to fight off suitors and enemies? Or is it the solemn vows that are exchanged? Or is it because they're cute flower girls and beautiful bridesmaids, who, by the way, actually used to have a very serious role? It was once a custom where maidens dressed similarly to the bride, 
And this was to act as, prevent, as protectors to prevent kidnapping or stealing of the dowry and also to confuse evil spirits trying to get at the couple. But back to our parable. There are a number of occasions in the Bible where Jesus is called the bridegroom and we are told that he will return for his bride, the church. Now, whilst our modern versions of weddings is beautiful, in my opinion, having this as our context doesn't necessarily help us with understanding the parable that Jesus is telling us. So I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking what a traditional first-century Jewish wedding might look like. And maybe that will give us a better context of understanding the story, the parable that Jesus was telling us. So it might have been an arranged union, or the couple might have met and fell in love. But the first thing to do was to, for the young man to go and seek the approval of his father. Once he had the approval of his father... They would, he would then go and speak to the bride's father and get the bride's father's approval. Then three things would happen. The groom would make a covenant with the bride, which was considered an actual contract. Then they would drink a cup of wine together, which was to seal the covenant, and then he would pay a price for her. You can see there are correlations here with Jesus and that he's paid the price for his bride, the church, by dying on the cross for us and established a new covenant of grace. Well, after this, the couple are effectively promised to one another, and many would have considered them married. However, now the groom goes away, away to his father's house, where he prepares a bridal chamber. And he tells the bride, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. The same words that Jesus uses in John 14. Now, this bridal chamber used to take quite some time to build. It could take as long as a year, and it had to be approved by the groom's father. It had to be stocked with provisions, and he had to get his father's final approval. Now, we were only engaged for four months, and I thought that was long enough. So you can imagine having this year or more where you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Um, If anyone asked him during that time when he was going to get married, he would say, I don't know, only my father knows. Jesus says this in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 when he warns us to be ready for his return and says that only our heavenly father knows when that is. In the meantime, the bride waited and waited and waited. She wore a veil to show that she was taken And as time wore on, she made sure she was home. Often the bridegroom would come at night as a surprise, and the only warning would be the sound of the shafar and the groom's party shouting through the streets as they came. The bridal party was to be ready for this, with lamps prepared. And the groom's party would whisk them all off. They'd head noisily through the streets and head back to the groom's father's house. The bride and groom would go to the marriage chamber, and the marriage would be consummated. They would then stay in the bridal chamber for seven days, and the guests would celebrate, hopefully not running out of wine or supplies in that time. At the end of the seven days, the bridal couple would return, join their guests, they'd have a fantastic wedding supper or banquet, and that would be with everybody. Then they would leave and go and live in a house that the groom had prepared for them. Can you imagine all of that? It's quite different to the way that we do weddings, isn't it? All of that symbolism, I just love, I love all of that. 
Does it help you to understand the context of this parable a little bit more? So at first reading, this is quite simply about the return of Jesus for his bride. He paid the price for us, and he's gone to prepare a place for us. In the meantime, we're here waiting and preparing for his return. And if we're not ready, we sadly will have the door of the kingdom of heaven closed to us. But as I was chewing over this parable, I started to think more about the bride and the bridesmaids waiting for the groom to arrive. A perpetual girly sleepover in a state of readiness, with nails constantly painted, hair coiffed and blow-dried. Might sound like fun at first, but I imagine it must have got got pretty tiresome after a while. So I can totally understand the bridesmaids falling asleep on the job. The parable doesn't seem to contain any judgment for them having fallen asleep or any concerns over the seemingly selfish actions of the wise bridesmaids who didn't share their oil. Indeed, that's not what this parable is about. Whilst there is a warning to prepare ourselves, we can't rely on someone else metaphorically providing our oil for us. We need to work out our own salvation and be ready ourselves. Now, unless you don't know me at all, you won't be surprised to find out that I'm somewhat lacking in the patience department. The old prayer, please, Lord, give me patience, but can you give it to me right now, would have been one of the ones that I would have prayed regularly as a child. But I think what the Lord would have us do is just stop for a while and chew over this concept of waiting. Think about it a little further. Why is it that pain and waiting are situations where we find ourselves which can be the most excruciatingly difficult or honestly quite boring times, but where God most often shapes and changes us? I don't know why it's that way. It just seems to be the case. I'm not going to talk specifically about pain today, although sometimes waiting is terribly painful. But we're going to have a look at waiting on the Lord whilst we wait for the Lord. And I'm going to look at the how and why of those two ideas. You may have heard of hurry sickness. I think it's a phrase coined by Bill Hybels. It's when you approach the checkout with your trolley of groceries and you're scanning which one is the fastest queue. You decide and you choose a lane, but you carry on monitoring all the cues to check what's going on, to check that you have actually made the right choice. The disappointment is acute when you realize that some of the other lanes are going faster than you are. Hurry sickness. We want things to happen fast and now. I recently read of an online store that was investigating delivery of parcels by drone so that we can get things faster and quicker. I think we're getting increasingly more used to a life of instant and less used to waiting. That poor bride and her bridesmaids and the bridal party, how long had they been waiting? They were so tired from all the waiting that they fell asleep. Have you been waiting for something for some time and you're tired of waiting? You're in good company. 
Let's look first at waiting on the Lord. Why? Why do we wait on the Lord? Well, God promises in Isaiah 40 that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a promise from the Lord that we can hold to. When we're in a period of waiting, it can feel painful. It can feel like it's lasting forever. And we need strength to see it through. God promises that we will renew our strength when we wait on him. I remember when we had just arrived in England, we had sold all our possessions in South Africa, and I'd like to pretend it was in order to follow Jesus, like the disciples, but actually it was about going and having an adventure. The first few months were a, it was, was a very difficult time for me in particular, as I couldn't find work for a while, and there was more months than there was money. I remember those times of despair, kneeling in a heap in the corner of our lounge, just sobbing. I questioned why we were here. I agonized over what to do. I felt worthless and lonely and afraid. And my only recourse was to bring it all to the Lord again and again and again and wait on him. My prayers My prayers were full of anguish and confusion and grumpiness and fear and self-loathing. God didn't answer straight away. He didn't fix the problem straight away. But I always knew the presence of his Holy Spirit. That whilst I was stuck in the circumstance, I was always assured of his love. I knew that he was my beloved and I was his. But you know, we can get stuck there. We can get stuck in our waiting. And I want to challenge us today that when we find ourselves in this place, that we need to try and look up. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to look to the mountains because that's where our help comes from. I think this takes a decision, an action on our parts, which can be very difficult at that time. I'm not saying that we shouldn't bring all our anguish and pain and disappointment and unachieved hopes and dreams to God when we're waiting, but at some time, we need to look up out of the muck of our circumstances, and we need to choose to lift our heads. I do believe that this is sometimes just sheer effort on our parts. So what does that look like? How do we wait on the Lord? Well, for me, after pouring out my heart to him and choosing to look up, I sometimes just start praying for other people, anyone and everyone that pops into my head. Sometimes that might lead to sending them a message or giving them a call. Oftentimes it leads to me falling asleep. Sometimes it's as simple as choosing to worship. We were created to worship our creator God. And when we worship him, again, we lift up our eyes off our troubles And we connect with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who loves us more than we can imagine. God desires intimacy with us. The whole imagery of the bridegroom and the bride is to remind us of that deeply personal, highly relational, intimate connection with Jesus. We remember that there is nothing that we can do that would make us that would make God love us more, and there is nothing that He can do that we can do that would make God love us less. And our prayers become those that echo, may you increase, Lord, so that I decrease. 
and we become rooted and connected with our beloved Jesus, and we find we have some strength for our situation. There are lots of other ways that we can wait on the Lord. There's a fabulous book by Dallas Willard about spiritual disciplines like fasting and solitude and silence. Um, Those give us tools to help draw nearer to King Jesus. Meditating on a scripture, saying the Lord's Prayer, remembering to count our blessings and be thankful, keeping a prayer journal. Those are all ideas, and I'm sure you'll have other tools on how to wait on the Lord. So we wait on the Lord whilst we're waiting for him. Why? What are we waiting for? Well, I'm waiting for Jesus to return. I'm also regularly waiting for answers. I'm waiting for the Lord to move in my life, to change me, to change my circumstances, to help me make decisions. I wait for the Lord to work in me and through me. And while I'm waiting for breakthrough, in the ordinary every day of my life, mostly I'm waiting to see the Holy Spirit move. We talk about the now and the not yet in the kingdom of the kingdom in the vineyard. And the best image that helped me to understand this concept was a white picket fence. So the white part is sometimes when we see God at work, we see the now of the kingdom, we see healing and change and freedom. And sometimes the gap is when we don't quite see where, where God is breaking through in our lives. I love to see the Holy Spirit moving. I want to see more of him in my life and in the lives of others, more of his kingdom. I'm waiting for more of him. Why? Why am I waiting for more of him? Well, at the most basic level, it's because he fills a void in our lives. Some people have called it a God-shaped void. I am known, warts and all, and he loves me still. Throughout scripture, um, Jesus is called by many different names. And we did a little study a little while ago and helped to understand the names of Jesus because that gives me a better understanding of some of the characters of Jesus because I need all of Jesus in my life. So I'm waiting for Jehovah Jireh, my provider, for Yahweh, unchanging one, for El Shaddai, God Almighty, for Jehovah El Enemet, the Lord God of truth, for a strong tower, for Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace, for Jehovah Maganenu, the Lord our defense. I am waiting for my God who is mighty to save, who makes the impossible possible, the Lord who heals and saves my helper and my comfort, the lover of my soul. I hope I've urged you today that whatever your situation, wherever you find yourself along life's journey, and most particularly if you're in a period of waiting, that you will feel encouraged to wait on the Lord whilst you wait for the Lord. I think what um, I'd like to do now is just to take a moment for us to wait on the Lord and wait for his presence. Um, So if we can do that. And I would just like you to have the freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do when you're waiting on the Lord. If that means that you want to lie down on the floor, kneel, um, anything you like, just bow your head, close your eyes, keep them open if you like. But let's just take a moment to just wait on the Lord and see what it is that he would have for us.